Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Greg Gansel. The problem with the many universe theory is that those things are just as supernatural as God, because they are completely outside of our scientific worldview. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. Greg Gansel is a lecturer at Yale University and has published over a dozen papers and book chapters on philosophy of religion. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's good to be here. Well, Greg, you recently published A Reasonable God, Engaging the New Face of Atheism. Right. Why did you write the book? That's a good question. I got interested in the new atheists, Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, and I noticed that some of the first responses to the new atheists in the popular press, to be honest, I didn't like the tone of the responses. It, it seemed to be a, a little too dismissive. To be honest, the new atheists, in a lot of their writings, because they're so passionate, can tend to be very dismissive of, of serious religious believers. And I found some of that tone coming out in some of the responses, and I thought what, what we really need is a very charitable, careful assessment of what exactly the arguments are being put forward and how do we engage those arguments. So that's, that's what I said I had to do. So I, I was really after a different kind of tone, uh, one that would take the argument seriously and try to put those arguments in their best possible light and then engage um, the case that these writers are making. And in your opinion, what is it that's new about the so-called new atheists? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. Obviously, atheism is very old. It's been as, around as long as philosophy has been around. One thing about the new atheists is that even though some of them are academics, they're not specialists in the field of philosophy of religion. Um, Dennett is a philosopher, and he's actually very good and well-established in philosophy of mind. But um, he hasn't engaged in any of the peer-reviewed articles in philosophy of religion. Um, he hasn't published in any of those venues. And so basically what the, one of the new things about the new atheists is they've taken their case directly to the public and not through the academic channels. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but most of the other major atheistic thinkers, and when you think of philosophers, you think about people like John Mackey and Anthony Flew until the last few years where he became a, a deist, and Richard Gale, they engaged in the academic peer review process. These writers have taken the role of public intellectual. So that's one thing that's new. The other thing that's new is that they are passionate and they're, they don't pretend to have a dispassionate, objective look at the issues, which makes their writing fun to read. And then a third thing that's new, I think, about the new atheists is that they're not only arguing for the truth of atheism, but a lot of their work seems to be aimed at convincing people not to want to believe in God. Now, of course, we can't lump them all together in some respects, because each of the books that these guys have written has different aims and a different scope. In fact, my last comment applies much less to someone like Dan Dennett's work than it does to Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens. So probably the only major thinker, even in the 20th century, that took this kind of role was Bertrand Russell, who wrote a great deal of 
popular level work about religion, but it was very different than his academic philosophy, which was very technical and still to this day is extremely well respected. His work on religion is considered just popular level stuff. So the new atheists are not completely new. We just haven't seen this phenomena since probably Bertrand Russell. Now, the new atheists talk a lot about science and religion. In your reading, what do they say about science religion, and then what is your response? Well, there's a lot of things that they say. One of the things that both Dawkins and Dennett do is that they engage Stephen Jay Gould's proposal that science and religion belong to what he calls non-overlapping magisteria, and he has the acronym NOMA for this position. Mm -hmm. And Gould's position is that science tells us about the realm of fact, and religion is more in the realm of grounding values. And what Gould is after is to support the legitimacy and importance about both these realms, and he thought these realms didn't overlap at all. Now, both Dennett and Dawkins are very critical of Gould, and I think they're exactly right in their criticisms. One of the points they make is that even though Gould is trying to make a legitimate place for religion, he turns religion into something that religious believers wouldn't even recognize. Mm -hmm. Because most religious believers think they're making factual claims. Right? They think the universe is such that God made it, and mm -hmm. God is real. God's as much a fact as other things are facts. And it's not really fair to re religious believers to tell them, no, you're not talking about facts, you're just talking about the realm of values and this kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, So I think their criticisms of Gould are exactly right. And so I have a lot, I, I'm very supportive of their view that, no, no, there are potential overlaps on issues between science and religion. Now, at the same time, I think especially Dawkins overstates his case, and Hitchens also, when they think that religion and science are fundamentally incompatible. Right? Uh, for example, Dawkins says that miracles violate the laws of science. And Hitchens says faith, there is no kind of faith that can stand up to reason, and in the context he's thinking most likely about scientific stuff. It's not clear, but it seems obvious that that's what he's doing. And I think that's where they make some mistakes, right? Because certainly, if you consider what God is supposed to be like, if God exists, God is not an empirical object. And so the realm of science is the realm of empirical objects and how they behave, what kind of regularities apply. And, well, the fact that science can't track God directly is something we should expect. It's not, God's not the kind of being that can be tracked in that way empirically. And then on the claim on miracles, I think they're fundamentally mistaken also, because there's no way that science can tell you that miracles cannot happen. That's a philosophical claim. What science tells you is what normally happens when no one interferes. The claim that it's impossible for some being to interfere cannot be established by science. So science operates under what, what's normally going to happen. And let's figure out how these things normally behave. If God exists and God stands outside the laws of physics, which of course he would since he would have invented the laws of physics, God can initiate new causal chains if he wants. So that's where I think they make the mistakes about science. There's a lot of discussion about how faith and reason and evidence should interact. And part of the problem mm -hmm. is that those words are used in so many different ways by different people. Right, right. But what's your perspective on the relation between faith and reason and evidence? Well, that's a great question. And I, I think um, there are ambiguities in, the, in the, the way we use these terms in the English language. So you, you think of the word believe. 
we use the word believe in sentences such as, I believe that Christopher Columbus existed. I believe that one plus one equals two. I believe that God exists. But we also use the word believe in terms of I believe in, like I believe in recycling. I believe in my wife, things like this. And that ambiguity, I think, gives rise to lots of the misunderstandings of faith and reason. And let me see if I can unpack this for a minute. The I believe that claims fundamentally mean you take something to be true. I believe that 1 plus 1 equals 2 means I take it that it's true, that 1 plus 1 equals 2. I take it that it's true that Columbus existed. And whether or not the claim is true is something that the appropriate evidence is what you're looking for. Right? How do you determine that Columbus existed? Well, there's historical methodologies. There are mathematical methodologies. So when you're evaluating a truth claim, evidence is required. Now, different kinds of claims, there are different kinds of evidence that's appropriate. There's historical evidence. There's evidence in chemistry. There's evidence in in mathematics and this kind of thing. But when we get to sentences like, I believe in, it gets really complicated. So if I say, I believe in recycling, I mean more than I believe that recycling is a good idea. Because I could have that belief. I could believe that recycling is a good idea, but if I never recycled, you would conclude that I really don't believe in it. Right? It involves some kind of commitment mm-hmm. or practice. When I say, I believe in my wife, it's more then I believe that she exists or that she's a good person. It has to do with some kind of trust or confidence. So when a religious believer says, I believe in God, it's ambiguous. And usually it means some of both. I believe that God exists and I have some kind of confidence or I make God a a central part of my life or something like that. Now, what's interesting about these two ways of using the word belief is that they're not proportionate. In other words, I can believe something is the case with some degree of probability, but there are certain things in life where my commitment to the truth of something has to exceed the probability that the evidence gives. Now, let me give you an example. Um, I live in Connecticut, and pretty often... I get in my car and drive on Interstate 95. And I know, I am absolutely confident that the probability of my getting to my destination safely is less than 100%. Because every day I see the car accidents and the broken down cars by the side of the road. Mm -hmm. So I have a less than 100% confidence that I'll get to where I'm going safely but I can't commit myself to my car 97%. I either get in the car or I don't. So I have to make a 100% or a 0% commitment, even though my evidence base is less than that. So you you can see what I mean by a disproportion. Hmm. Um, And and same thing is true in relationships. It's very bad for your marriage if you tell your spouse that you are committing yourself to her 99.9% because that's as high as the probability is that she's going to be true to you or something. <laughs> that would be very bad. You know, so there are certain things in life where the commitment has to be more. And I think that is one of the features that the new atheists and, and other people misunderstand. They don't understand how can it be reasonable for a religious person to make some kind of 
deep and full commitment to God when the evidence for God is less than 100%. And I think it's it's because that's the nature of those kinds of commitments, whether it's any kind of personal relationship or things like driving in our car is another good example. So that helps me sort these things out for people. And I think the question of evidence for God is completely appropriate when you're trying to evaluate what reasons do we have to think that God exists or God doesn't exist. But if a person becomes convinced that it's likely that God exists, God is the sort of being that kind of calls for a commitment. It's not like believing that Columbus existed and, you know, we go on our way. If God exists, then certainly there's something about the direction of my life that ought to take that fact into account, and it requires that kind of response. Well, so is the idea that, on your view, we can use the word faith to talk about that decision that's made when a believer has enough evidence to think that God exists and calls for a particular kind of commitment, and then, you know, you, that's the kind of thing where you have to commit yourself fully, or it works best if you commit yourself fully, and so you commit yourself beyond the level of the evidence, just like we uh, commit ourselves beyond the reliability of the car when we get into the car. Is that kind of right. what's going on, and that's how we might use the word faith? Maybe so. I mean, people use the word faith in both ways, but there is an element of that in the nature of religious faith. And I think especially in the, the part of religious faith that sometimes atheists get annoyed with. I understand why. I mean, William James wrote on this some in his essay, The Will to Believe, mm -hmm. And Kierkegaard, of course, was very big on uh, in his section on truth as subjectivity. I mean, he wasn't saying truth is subjective. He was saying that, you know, if I don't make a subjective personal commitment to the truth, I, then I have to wonder if I've really encountered it. Right? So he was talking about both ends of this. Now, the way you frame it, it sounds like this use of the word faith might be just as applicable to a lot of stances taken by non-believers. It doesn't seem like this phenomenon would be unique to religion. Is that right? I think so. You know, you think about someone who's who's a committed environmentalist. I mean, I wouldn't want to call that a religion, but the dynamics of that commitment are at least analogous to the dynamics of the commitment in religion. When you look at the dynamics of what it means for a person to make that kind of commitment to a cause or an idea or a person, it's at least a family resemblance. So, for example, if you really believe in recycling, there's evidential things in terms of is it really a good policy or not. And then there's you make changes in your life and you start sorting out your garbage and you do whatever needs to be done. You know, there's something analogous in that to religious belief, where if I become convinced that God is real, um, and, and especially in the context of a particular religion, not just a generic theism, but I, don't, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that it, a committed environmentalist, that's a religion for that person. You know, I don't want to make that point. Religion is a confused enough word already. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to make it worse. Well, I think maybe another good analogy here would be climate change. You know, I mean, a lot of people have said that even if we jump back several years and we say, well, the, the evidence isn't all in, but it seems to be indicating that there's this human-caused 
explosion of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and this is going to really affect millions of lives on the planet. And we, right. we should really commit ourselves, because we've got just enough evidence and it's worth committing ourselves 110% to this now that we've got enough right. evidence, even though we don't have 100% evidence. Right, yeah, that might be a good example. And so there's a reasonability factor. I mean, so if you think that the evidence indicates with you know, a reasonable degree of confidence that this is going on, then making a, a, a strong commitment becomes a reasonable response to that. You don't need to say, well, okay, the evidence comes in at 67%, so I'm only going to have a 67% commitment to these policies. Right? You don't need to have that kind of proportion. So that might be a good analogy. Well, back to the new atheists, Dawkins mm -hmm. in particular has spent much of his career arguing against the design argument mm -hmm. for God's existence. What is your assessment of how Dawkins presents his case against the design argument? Well, I think, you know, there are two basic design arguments. The classical place to look at that is Paley, the watch argument, the watch analogy, and, and it has to do with biological structures. And of course, Paley wrote before Darwin, and a lot of what Dawkins has been doing in his life is arguing that Darwinism undermines that argument, and I think he's absolutely right about that. So the argument goes something like this. We've got this complicated structure that is ordered for a purpose. And, and that's pretty indisputable. Like, so the, the structure of the eye is in order to see. Right? And it's analogous to artifacts that are designed for a purpose. Therefore, probably it was designed for a purpose. And what Darwinism did, and Neo-Darwinism especially, says, yes, but we have a story about how it could come to look like it was designed for a purpose without it actually being designed for a purpose. And furthermore, there's a lot of evidence that the story is true. And so it undermines that, that inference in the classical design argument very strongly. Now, of course, some people have tried to challenge you know, whether Darwinism really is true or can do that, and I don't think they've been all that successful. I guess I think the case for a generally neo-Darwinian view is, so, is strong enough that it's going to be very hard to resurrect the classical design argument from biological structures. Mm -hmm. Dawkins, you know, has been reporting on this. Now, the other design argument, what you could call the new design argument, is about fine-tuning in the universe, which, of course, is not a biological structure. And so Darwinism has nothing to do with the argument from the fine-tuning which I think is actually a strong argument. And that's the notion that what's not controversial is that the equations that describe the conditions necessary for the development of the universe have all of these different constants in them, and the value of these constants have to be very precise in order to have a universe that either doesn't expand too fast or collapse too quickly, in order to have a stable universe that where you can get heavy elements synthesized in the stars and the possibility of biological life and all of this stuff. So that part's not controversial. What's controversial is, okay, how do, you, how do we explain this apparent precision? Of course, the inference is that it, it couldn't have happened by chance. And everyone pretty much agrees that it couldn't have happened by chance if this is the only universe that emerged. And of course, one of the responses is, 
perhaps there are millions and millions of other universes, and by chance, one or two of them are going to turn out to be stable. That, that's the most popular response. And Dawkins takes that response. But the problem with the many-universe theory is that those things are just as supernatural as God because they are completely outside of our scientific worldview. There are different laws of physics, so none of our scientific theories can apply to them. They're completely causally disconnected from our universe, so we could get no empirical knowledge about them. They're basically a metaphysical postulate, which is possible, but it doesn't fit into the methodologies that people like Dawkins claim to be holding. And that gets, you know, it gets kind of complicated. In fact, I have a paper that is just coming out this summer in the Journal of Religious Studies about the fine-tuning argument and how the many-universe theory challenges various conceptions of naturalism, how it doesn't fit in. And the evidence doesn't support the many-universe hypothesis over the designer hypothesis. I want to get back to your book. In your book, Mm -hmm. you discuss three arguments for atheism that the new atheists Mm -hmm. have given. What's the first one that you discuss? The one is the who may God argument, which gets raised. Sometimes these aren't developed very carefully as arguments in in, in the writing. Mm -hmm. I remember reading an interview with you where you said that the least favorite part of your process of writing the book was the exegesis of trying to figure out what the new atheists were saying. And I've discovered that myself in, in, in trying to understand, particularly Dawkins' central argument. I've been trying to find a way, if there's a way to state it, with logical coherence and and some persuasive force, and it's that <laughs> people keep giving me so many different interpretations of that chapter uh, to yeah. evaluate. It's so difficult to understand because they're not writing in a peer-reviewed journal where precision and clarity are really required. Right, right. I think I think that's right, and they could have used some friendly but critical comments before they went to press. I think. I mean, they're to ask for more clarity. Yeah. I mean, so they, they allude to arguments like who made God, and it sounds silly when you say it that way, but the way they put it forward is not entirely silly. It's kind of like, is it really the case that this being could serve as the explanation for everything without needing to be explained by something outside of himself? Mm-hmm. And so even if you get a good cosmological argument or a good design argument, Dawkins says, well, the designer is going to be just as complicated as anything he designs, and he's going to require an explanation. Yeah, it seems like God would require more explanation than he can give. Mm-hmm. And this is the hunch that Dawkins is going with. And so the way I respond to it is to talk about the difference between contingent beings and necessary beings. Right? And the concept of God, both historically, has always been thought to be a necessary being, but there are good reasons to think that if God exists, God is necessary, meaning independent, not dependent on other things. And one of the lines of thought is you think, well, if God exists and he created the physical universe and made up the physical laws, it's hard to imagine what it is he depends on. You know, he doesn't depend on the atomic structure of DNA because he made up all that stuff. He doesn't depend on laws of physics because he made those up. So you can see why it's plausible that the concept of God is the concept of an independent being, one that requires no explanation outside itself. Perhaps something like, there are certain truths that philosophers think are necessary, like one plus one equals two. It's not the kind of truth like there's a book on the table. Right? And the explanation for why there's a book on the table 
includes things outside of that, like somebody put the book on the table, someone printed the book, and all of these things. So, you know, when you see the difference between necessary and contingent things, then you see that some things require explanation and some things don't, because they're their own explanation, so to speak. We don't require an explanation of why 1 plus 1 equals 2. Right, right. It's not based on anything more basic in mathematics. And w are there other reasons why we might think that if God exists, he must be a necessary being, be besides this logic about him certainly not being contingent on anything within the universe, because he created it? Are there additional arguments there? There are. And Anselm, I mean, this is connected to the ontological argument, which basically argues that the concept of God, whether there is such a being that matches the concept, is the concept of a being that has all of the great-making properties, right? properties that it's better to have than not to have. Right? And necessary existence is a great-making property, uh, to exist necessarily. In other words, to be unable to fail to exist. And I think Anselm is right about, about this move. Anselm also goes on to say, and it's logically possible that there's a necessary existent being, and once you grant that, then the ontological argument is sound, if you're right about the, your three premises there. But in order to explore the concept of God as a necessary being, you don't need to affirm that it's possible that there's a necessary being. That's the most controversial premise in the ontological argument. So the concept of God is, you know, the way Anselm put it, was a being than which none greater can be conceived. And if you take two existing beings and to compare them, the one that can't fail to exist, in other words, exists necessarily, is greater, metaphysically speaking, than the one that can fail to exist. And that's, I think, a very strong argument in favor of the claim that the concept of God is the concept of a being that exists necessarily. And then if God exists necessarily, then that would explain why he himself doesn't require explanation, but he's able to be offered as an explanation for other yes. things. Exactly. Well, exactly. I was recently reading an article by Paul Draper, with whom mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar. Yeah, I know Paul. And mm -hmm. uh, he writes that he was writing in the context of a debate with Alvin Plantinga about how this kind of ontological argument type reasoning seems to be the only reason that's given as to why God must be necessary. But the mm -hmm. ontological argument is rejected by most philosophers, I would think. Certainly it's not <laughs> going to persuade the atheist. Right. But on the other hand, there is a rather long list of arguments to, to the effect that the concept of God is necessarily false. The kind of incoherence or incompatible properties arguments given mm -hmm. by several atheist philosophers. Right. And so this argument about whether or not a god can be necessarily existent is kind of tricky, but if we just look at the force of the various arguments that are out there, it would seem like the force of the arguments to the effect that god is necessarily false would be stronger than the, the force of the argument concluding that god is necessarily true. Do you have any comments on that thought? Yes, no, I haven't read the article, and I think Draper's one of the really good non-theistic philosophers doing philosophy of religion. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think he's just really, really good. I guess my first pass would be something like this. It seems like Draper's response agrees that the concept of God is the concept of a necessary being. I'll, I'll jump in here just a moment, because you haven't read the article, and I have. Oh, that's right. Um, so his response to Plantinga is, 
first of all, that most uh, believers haven't really thought about God being a necessary being. This is sort of a philosopher's idea. In fact, right, most people right. don't even have a concept of what necessary and contingency is yeah, until they take true. a philosophy class. But I'll let you continue with your thought. No, that's absolutely true. And if the concept of God is the concept of a necessary being, then you either have God necessarily existing or necessarily God not existing. Either God is necessary or impossible. I mean, this is the logic of the situation. And in the ontological argument, the key premise is that it's metaphysically possible that a necessarily existing being exists. Obviously, if that's true, then it goes forth. But of course, if it's false, if that premise is false, then what you're saying is it's not possible that there's a necessary being. Therefore, this concept of God is impossible. And I think this is what Draper is arguing. So I guess I, I would agree with the structure of Draper's argument because he's, he's agreeing that God is either necessary or impossible. Right? It's not the kind of thing like, wow, God could have existed, but he doesn't. You know, something bad happened and he just doesn't exist. That's just a different concept of God. There, there are many weaker concepts of God than the God of classical theism. Yeah, and if you, you know, if you talk to a religious person, and it doesn't take long for them to see that. I think he's absolutely right. People haven't thought about the concepts of necessity, right? It would be good if they had. They should teach that in grade school. But if you help someone unpack their concept of God, I, most people, I think, are going to think it's strange if you think, well, you know, it's a good thing X, Y, Z happened because otherwise God wouldn't exist. They, they would think, no, there's something wrong with that picture. Okay, so maybe most religious believers are implicit necessary God believers. I think probably... But on the other hand, you know, even if they're not, I'm not sure how important that claim is. Mm -hmm. There's good reason, both the, both the Anselmian argument and then just figuring out, you know, if, if God is not a necessary being but is contingent, then you have to ask the question, on what would he be contingent? And it seems difficult to find something. So I think on that point, Draper and I probably agree but then the disagreement is, well, is there a good reason to think that the concept of a necessary being is satisfied by the existence of something or not? And I think that's where we disagree. And you probably disagree on the strength of the arguments to the effect that God necessarily does not exist. Oh, I'm sure we do. Yes. So that's uh, your response to one of the atheistic arguments in the New Atheist right. literature, the, the who made God, or God right. requires more explanation than he offers. What's another atheistic argument that you respond to in your book? You know, I, I deal with three in one chapter fairly quickly be, because they aren't as developed, and then I deal with what I think the best argument is. The other two are religious pluralism undermines the reasonability of believing in God. At least Dennett is especially strong about this, and, and it comes up at numerous points when he says, which God are we talking about? And I don't think that argument amounts to much at all because, as I say in my book, you can stipulate a concept of God for the purpose of discussion, and then see whether that concept of God is instantiated, right? Whether there is a being that fits that concept of God. And you can just ignore all the other concepts of God for a while. The other thing is that atheism, and this is something about the nature of positions like theism and atheism, they're actually not theories. And Dennett makes this claim. He thinks it's because theism is too ambiguous to be a theory. And that's not the real issue. The real issue is that it's too broad. 
theism is simply the claim that God exists. And it has implications for some theories, but there are, you know, millions of theories that fit under that. And these theories are incompatible with each other, right? It, is utilitarianism correct in ethics or some kind of Kantianism, right? Well, there are theistic utilitarians and theistic Kantians, and, they, and they're going to continue to debate. So theism kind of is, encompasses a family of theories, or maybe it's a position or a worldview that provides resources for theories. And atheism is even more general because it's simply the denial of theism. Then it makes a lot of noise that there's a, there are thousands of incompatible religions, but there are thousands of incompatible atheist positions. Any important thing. The only thing we agree about is that there's a certain being that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Well, there's naturalists, there's non-naturalists, there's utilitarians, Kantians, uh, social contract theorists, there's all kinds of atheistic worldviews. So the point is, that's not an objection to atheism, okay? All that is saying, let's recognize that when we're talking about theism in general and atheism, there's going to be a tremendous plurality. And the plurality means on particular details, not all of these views are going to be true. So there are lots of false theistic views, even if God exists. Now, they're right about God existing, if God really exists. But they might be wrong about the foundation of ethics or global warming or the nature of aesthetic properties or, you know, any number of of things. And the same thing is true with atheism. So the pluralism problem cuts against everything. And if that's the case, then it doesn't amount to much of an objection. Sometimes people think atheism is less pluralistic because they forget about all these theories, but they also think that it tracks science and that science converges. But atheism doesn't track science any more than theism tracks science, right? And our knowledge about the things science tells us tends to converge. But whether you're a theist or an atheist, our views about aesthetics, ethics, public policy, all of these things continue to diverge. So there's kind of an illusion that pluralism is a problem for religion, but not for atheism. Um, So I don't think that one amounts to much. And then the other one is the problem of evil, which surprisingly gets very little treatment from the new atheists. But I, I talk about it a little bit. Dawkins never raises it because he thinks moral goodness is not part of the concept of God when he defines the God hypothesis. And as a result, he correctly recognizes that the problem of evil is not a problem for the concept of God he's discussing. Dennett barely mentions the problem of evil. He hits it in a footnote and, and in a couple of sentences. Um, Harris talks about it for a couple of pages. Uh, now, I think the problem of evil is a serious problem, and it's big, and it's huge. And, but in engaging with, with them, it, it's not one of the major players. I often wish, you know, the new atheists are selling these millions of copies of books and it would have been a good opportunity to just, I mean, you don't have to come up with new arguments. You just, you know, summarize the 1979 William Rowe paper, summarize the Schellenberg divine hiddenness arguments, summarize some of the incompatibility properties arguments. It wouldn't be that hard at all to have a ton of really strong, really well-developed arguments for your position. But mm-hmm. instead, it's mostly just uh, kind of long rants and hitting lots of good points along the way, but right. really not a strong case for atheism that you could have in these books. No, it's impassioned, and I think that's why it sells, right? And these guys are public intellectuals, and they, they got a lot of press, and 
you know, and, and maybe the kind of book that I tried to write is not that interesting, right? Because it's careful, you know, we're going for clarity, we're not... You don't have enough unfair zingers in there. Nobody's going to read your yeah. book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's the case. And, um, you know, because we do live in a soundbite age. Mm-hmm. And and you you in my in my first book I wrote a little book called Thinking About God and it's you know a basic introduction. I made the point that thinking is unpopular. You never hear a public figure say in a debate, "My opponent made really good points. I'm going to have to think about them." Yeah. Nobody ever says that publicly. <laughs> or you never get like an actress when she wins the Academy Award. Was, you know what's next for you? Well, I want to take the next couple of years and think about virtue. You know, nobody's <laughs> ever going to say that. And, um, you know, so it's not that interesting to the, our general public. So on one side, part of what makes these books popular is the impassioned tone. And, it, and it's kind of what makes them fun to read and interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're trying to engage them, that can be frustrating because you, it, it, the argument is, like you said, is, is hard to find. Yeah. And it's hard to trace. I think there are arguments there. Well, let's talk about the last chapter of your book then on what you call Dawkins' best argument for atheism. Which one is that? Okay, this is the one, it's called the fittingness argument, it's the name of the chapter, Um, although when I published it as a paper, it was Dawkins' best argument. He argues that, uh, it starts something like this, a theistic universe and an atheistic universe will be different in detectable ways. Okay, that's kind of a premise. And then he says, the universe we see fits better with the atheistic picture than it does with the theistic picture. Therefore, that raises the probability that atheism is true. Okay, let me make a few observations about the argument. First of all, it's perfectly sound. I mean, if its premises are true, it does raise the probability of atheism. This is why I think it's the strongest argument that's developed. And it's an argument about fittingness which I think insightful on Dawkins' part. So he doesn't say the universe we observe is incompatible with theism, which is a very strong claim to make, and because it's such a strong claim, it's very easy to refute. Fittingness is, is, is a much looser connection, but it's enough to raise the probability. Right? And, and, it's a, and I, I think it's a very good way to reason about worldviews. So I really like the structure of the argument. Now, obviously, the key premise, I mean, I agree that the worlds are different in detectable ways. We should expect evidence for one or the other. Now, what Dawkins points to is why does our world more resemble a world that fits with atheism than with theism is the fact that biological life developed over a very long period of time through natural selection, neo-Darwinism. And his point on this is, if God exists, God could have brought life into being any number of ways. He could have done it instantaneously. He could have done it with literal seven-day days. He could have done it all different kinds of ways, because he's got all kinds of resources. If atheism is true, it's got to be some kind of long process that at least appears to be largely governed by accident. And that's exactly what we find. And that's why it confirms atheism. Now, I think he's right about all that stuff. I think the fact that we have this extremely 
strong evidence that this is the way life really developed. And that's the very thing that has to be there. I mean, it doesn't have to be natural selection, but it's got to be a long process, something like that. That's better with atheism. So I think he really raises the point there. Now, the problem with the argument is that he only looks at that one line of evidence. Right? In this one feature, our world does resemble an atheistic world. And, and I respond by saying, yeah, but there are other fundamental features that point in the opposite direction. And what I'm not trying to do is turn these into arguments for God's existence, you know, and say, therefore, God exists, but at least to challenge his premise and say, actually, I think the universe we find more closely resembles a theistic universe. Right? So I talk about things like the fact that the universe is stable at all and has laws that make knowledge possible. Because if atheism is true, there, there are very, any number of ways the universe could have been. Right? Atheism itself doesn't give you any reason to think it's going to come out one way rather than another, whereas if God exists and God is a mind, as theists believe, then it makes sense that if God makes a universe for, on purpose, he's going to make it with certain order and reasonings. No, it doesn't mean he had to do it that way but at least it fits better. Because remember, it's a fitting argument. So that's one of the things. The other one's consciousness fits better with theism than atheism. Now, and this is true even if you can find a naturalistic theory of consciousness. Right? Just like Dawkins' point that Darwinism fits better with atheism than with theism, even if theistic evolution is coherent. It's still a, a better fit. And so you think, if atheism is true, there's... There, there's no reason that we, that we would expect in an atheistic universe consciousness. But if theism is true, it's a strong fit because God is a conscious being. And if God has purposes, it's, it's not alien to that story to think of consciousness. Those, I think, are very strong points. And then I, do two, I, I raise two that are a little more controversial. One is free agency and one is objective moral obligations. Right? And, of course, I defend a libertarian free agency, which fits much better with um, theism because God is an agent who acts for reasons and freely chooses to create the universe. And then objective moral obligations, that there really is uh, an obligation not to torture people to death and things like this. So anyway, we can see kind of where my response goes. So I think it's the best argument because the structure is right. And he does identify one feature of our universe in which it fits better with atheism than theism. But I think if we make more global observations, we're going to find many points at which it fits better with theism than atheism, which would, which would undermine his argument. Now, I, I just raised four, but I'm sure there are others. Yeah, and the way I read this, it's almost like a meta-argument where you know, you've got all these elements that you that some people do turn into individual arguments for the existence of God mm -hmm. or against the existence right. of God, like, you know, mm -hmm. consciousness is some evidence for theism over, or right. consciousness confirms theism over atheism, or right. natural selection confirms atheism over theism. And it's almost like this structure of argument is just trying to say, hey, which uh, belief system fits better with everything that we do observe, with all the right. evidence? And so yeah. Dawkins raised uh, one thing that fits better with atheism than with theism, and then you respond by 
giving listing some things that seem to fit better with theism than with atheism. Yeah. Um, but it seems like it's open to Dawkins to suggest some other things that oh, are more, yeah. you know, fit better with atheism than right. with theism. For example, um, pointless suffering or the, the right. fact that the Bible is riddled with contradictions and competing theologies right. or God's mm -hmm. divine hiddenness, uh, God's right. willingness to allow billions of people to be deceived by false religions. Um, mm -hmm. Those types of things might fit with some forms of theism, but certainly not Abrahamic theism. Um, right. And so I, I imagine the argument proceeding that way, or the debate proceeding that way. Well, it could. It could. And then, and then for those things, we could either argue that there's not a fittingness problem, right? Or admit that for some of these there are fittingness problems, and then you know, continue to explore which way the total case points, right? And yeah, and so my my response is certainly not uh, the last word on this kind of approach, but I think it, it's a sufficient response to the way Dawkins structures the argument. But hopefully, it will spark more um, work and discussion on on these things. Um, it it also raises this question. I mean, your your response, which I think is um, something I've been thinking about more recently, the resources to engage in that kind of meta-argument are, you know, if, if we're just doing atheism versus theism, you have a set of resources and then a set of problems. But if, if you commit yourself to not a generic atheism or a generic theism, but particular atheism and particular theism, then certain lack of fittingness doesn't count against your theory. So, for example, if I were to raise against Dawkins, a critique of Marxism that, you know, economic forces are not the major forces, it would be perfectly fine for him to say, sure, that's, that's a problem for a Marxist atheism, but I'm not a Marxist atheist, right? I'm this kind of atheist. And, and that's going to give him, you know, in a sense, shelter from certain, from objections to other kinds of atheisms, but also it might give him resources to fine-tune his articulation of his view, and the same thing is true with theism. So, you know, there are very few generic theists. Most theists are some kind of, they're Christian, they're Muslim. There are some generic theists that believe in God, and that's about it. But when you begin to bring in the resources of a particular theism, then that helps solve some of the lack of fitting problems in two ways. One, some of those problems aren't really lack of fitting with this particular theism because it has the resources to encompass them. And some of the objections sim simply don't apply. But, uh, you know, we'll have to see how the discussion unfolds. And in your book, it seems that you're trying to change the tone of the discussion between believers and atheists. You talked about that before. Yeah. Could you elaborate on what you would like to see happen as the discussion between believers and atheists evolves? Well, well, I, I, I would like to see this kind of thing happen. And, you know, to be honest, it, it happens in lots of places. I'm not the only one thinking about these things. I think people should really care about this stuff. It's important to how we live our lives, right? especially if you decide to adopt a particular theism, right? then there are claims on our life. So I, I'm not trying to encourage people to be aloof from the issues. I would love to see us become more secure, or more charitable and say, you know, it's okay if people disagree. I'm not going to get bent out of shape. Sure, I would love to persuade you, and I would love to have you, depending on who I'm talking to, right, you know, anybody, you know, 
you should want to try to persuade me, but that doesn't mean we can't be friends and we can't encourage each other. And um, the, the the notion that disagreement must bring enmity is something um, that's that's rampant in our culture. And you know, I'm, I don't want to go into speculating about why, but I think we can get over it. I mean, I was giving a talk on, on campus for one of the Christian groups, and during the Q and A, I was in an exchange with a student. And finally I said, well, you know, I didn't persuade you. Well, I didn't think I would persuade everybody. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> and, you know, so it doesn't have to be cantankerous in any way. Right. And so, you know, I would love to see that tone change. Now, in the same token, I don't want to claim to think I'm the only one who's, you know, that the tone has always been bad or anything. Because there, are, there have been lots of people, people who have engaged with some commitment and passion on both sides of this issue, but have had a really healthy tone. I mean, I think Paul Draper's one of them. Well, Greg, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Luke.